Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to the book of Revelation, chapter 1, and verses 1 through 8. Revelation chapter 1, the first eight verses. Let's give careful attention now to the reading of God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place, And he sent and signified it by his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ to all things that he saw. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy and keep those things which are written in it, for the time is near. John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from Him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before His throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth. To Him who loved us and washed us from our sins in His own blood and has made us kings and priests to God his God and Father. To Him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, He is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see Him, even they who pierced Him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of Him. Even so, Amen. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Amen. Let's turn now to chapter 19 and verse 11 in that same book of Revelation. Revelation 19, verse 11 and With God's help, we'll be reading up through chapter 20 and verse 10. Once again, let's hear God's word, beginning this time in verse 11. Now I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire. And on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that no one knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies in heaven clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword, that with it he should strike the nations." And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. He himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and he cried with a loud voice, saying to all the birds that fly in the midst of heaven, 
Come and gather together for the supper of the great God, that you may eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses, and of those who sit on them, and the flesh of all people, free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast, the kings of the earth, and their armies, gathered together to make war against him who sat on the horse and against his army. Then the beast was captured, and with him the false prophet who worked signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped his image. These two were cast alive into the lake of fire burning with brimstone, and the rest were killed with the sword which proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse, and all the birds were filled with their flesh." Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image, and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of His Word to us this evening. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this evening, let's turn back to Revelation chapter 1. The passage that we read from the introductory verses to this book of the Revelation. We're told in the very first verse, the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, things which must shortly take place. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants, Things which must shortly take place. 
Now this message this evening comes at the tail end of uh, a rather lengthy sermon series that we've been engaged in for a number of weeks, perhaps even months, as we've been surveying the biblical message concerning the future of God's kingdom between now and the second coming of Christ. And we've been surveying the biblical material which has presented to us a far different picture than what's often uh, assumed to be the case by many believers. Uh, Many of us are tempted, even from an early age, we've been taught to think that between now and the second coming, things are going to get worse and worse and worse. Perhaps that type of outlook has been reinforced by the fact that in our culture and in our society, things have indeed gotten worse and worse and worse in at least a variety of ways. We've seen through this sermon series, hopefully, the biblical picture uh, that's quite different, that presents to us a very different alternative outlook and lens through which to view history. That yes, in our own day, our own culture, uh, which we ought not to think is the be-all, end-all of world history, is in fact on a downward spiral, But the fact is that the kingdom of Jesus Christ is prophesied from Genesis to Revelation as a kingdom that will prevail over its enemies, a kingdom that will disciple all nations of the world. And we've seen that all nations, according to Scripture, will join together in a corporate profession of the true religion prior to the return of Christ. We've seen it in Genesis, we've seen it in the Psalms, in Isaiah, in Daniel, in the Gospels, in the Epistles, time and time again. And last time we looked at a number of objections that people raise and we were able, uh, hopefully with God's help, to respond to those objections and to neutralize them such that the teaching of Scripture that we've seen so far stands. Uh, That teaching that you can really see presented just to give you one example psalm 22 after it presents the humiliation and suffering of christ for the sins of his people it then presents his exaltation his resurrection his ascension to the right hand of god and his seating his enthronement at the right hand of god and and the fruit that is to follow through the gospel verse 27 all the ends of the world shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you, for the kingdom is the Lord's, and He rules over the nations. We sang in Psalm 2 that the Lord Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, has inherited all nations as His possession, and through the Great Commission, we know that He is discipling them into worshipful obedience, that they might kiss the Son, not just individuals, not just a remnant, but across the board, the nations of the world ultimately coming to profess the name of Christ. And at this point, though we've dealt with a number of objections, you might still in the back of your mind be be thinking to yourself, well, if Jesus Christ is truly the heir of the world, And if he has inherited the nations, and he's going to disciple them in history prior to his return, if all of these things are true, then why don't we find this emphasized more so in the New Testament? Now, we have responded to a number of these types of objections uh, last time in Paul's epistles, but still, 
I think for many Christians, it lingers in the back of their mind. Is it possible we've misunderstood these numerous Old Testament prophecies in Isaiah and in Daniel and in the Psalms and in Genesis? Is it possible that we've misunderstood things, these things because we come to the New Testament and do we really see that emphasis upon history and upon the dealings of Jesus Christ with entire nations of the world, not just with individuals, not just His return at the end of the age to judge the world, but where do we see the New Testament emphasis upon His historical dealings with the nations of this world during the New Testament period? I mean, wouldn't you expect perhaps even an entire book of the Bible to be written concerning that subject? And of course, if we're expecting that, the Lord doesn't disappoint us because we do have an entire book of the Bible written and devoted to that major theme, the dealings of Christ with the nations of the world during the New Testament period between His ascension and His return in glory. We have just such a book. In fact, it's the the last book and crowning achievement of the entire canon of Scripture. This is the book of Revelation. Now, this is a book that we need to deal with and handle with care, much like the doctrine of predestination. Our confession warns us to be very careful with the doctrine of predestination because it can be abused and it can become an undue focus in the life of the church to the detriment, to the spiritual harm of God's people if it's not handled with care. Well, so it is with this last book of the Bible. Perhaps you've met many people that have come up to you and claim to be Christians and you ask them, uh, you know, what they believe. And I've had this happen uh, when I'm out street evangelizing and things like this. And, and someone will say, well, you know, I'm not all that familiar with the Bible, but I have a favorite book, the book of the revelations. And then they go on and begin to tell you all kinds of Uh, in some cases, crazy ideas that they learned on television about biblical prophecy charts. And many of us can become uh, drawn in to study, quote-unquote, the end times or biblical prophecy in an unhealthy way that distracts us from our Christian life. And it's significant that John the Apostle addresses that right from the outset in this book of Revelation, right in the very first verse He says that this revelation was given by God to Christ to show His servants. This is a book that's not meant for people sitting in their theological armchair and sitting around meditating on biblical prophecy charts and not getting out and serving the Lord in a practical way. It's not meant to distract you from the heart of the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's not meant to distract you from your everyday service in the family, in society, in the workplace, and all of these different things, the book of Revelation is supremely practical and it's meant to be part of a balanced diet of biblical truth and biblical practice. So God has revealed these things to His servants. And I would dare say if you are sitting around in the armchair and you you aren't actively serving the Lord don't be surprised if he gives you over to a, one of these totally crazy views of biblical prophecy because uh, the people that are couch potatoes watching the televangelists wax eloquent on biblical prophecy, um, in a sense, 
that you get what you pay for. So God wants us to serve Him and prioritize what we know to be true and what we know to be right and good. And in the context of that, the book of Revelation provides us with a very important aspect, a very important nutritional aspect to our biblical diet of truth. And that's what we find in this book of Revelation. In fact, it's attached with a unique blessing. Verse 3, blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. Now that's encouraging us to read it for ourselves. It's encouraging us as parents to read this book to our children in family worship. But I think if you look at verse 3 in particular, you can see that it's a blessing for the church to incorporate this book into its public worship. Uh, Blessed is he who reads. There's one person reading and there's many people hearing the words of this prophecy. And so this is a book that we ought to be reading in public worship, expounding and applying in public worship, which is what we're doing this evening and perhaps for a few more weeks. Blessed is he who reads and those who hear the words of this prophecy. And then, of course, the blessing is also contingent upon our response. Are we incorporating this into our life of service and obedience where it's not merely intellectual, uh, you know, uh, theological candy or something, but it's, it's actually something that we keep and guard and observe and apply those who keep these things which are written in the book for the time is near. Are we reading this book as something that's relevant to our lives, no less than to the original recipients. Well, uh, so much for the significance and relevance of this book. We need to approach it and handle it with care. Uh, We also need to take into account that this book is the highest level of biblical study and of biblical interpretation. This book forces us, in order to understand it, and there are many things that are easy to understand, believe it or not, uh, but there are many things that are difficult to understand in this book, and the only way to make any sense of those difficult passages is to have a thoroughgoing knowledge of the first 65 books of the Bible. This book of Revelation uh, is a book that presupposes that we've taken... Uh, the, uh, the prerequisite courses, if you will. You, know, you wouldn't want to take a course that had several prerequisites if you're in college or in the university and you take a course, but you haven't taken the prerequisites. And often many people, as they say the cliche, they go from salvation to revelation. They're converted and all of a sudden they think they're going to identify the, each of the ten horns on the beast and they get all confused and it's not helpful. Uh, better to, to handle this book with care and not in a hasty way, but to study the parts of the Bible that are very clear and even the parts of this book that are more clear and then to gradually build on that foundation. We shouldn't expect, I certainly don't, to understand everything in the book of Revelation right away. If you do understand it that way, you're probably uh, making all kinds of mistakes because it takes a gradual building of your foundation based upon the clear teachings of other books and based upon the clear teachings in this book. So it's, it's a book that can be a, a real stumbling block if we're not careful, but a great blessing 
if we are careful. Now, this book of Revelation is, is very relevant to our sermon series. That's, of course, we left it for, for the end of the series because it's the last book in the Bible, but it's very fitting for us to consider it last because it really takes everything that we've learned in the previous sermons and the previous surveys of biblical material and enables us to come to, to a, a more comprehensive picture of what God is doing in New Testament history. And in fact, that's exactly what this book of Revelation is all about. Uh, the book of Revelation employs what's called predictive prophecy to forecast major events, periods, and developments in New Testament history. Now, that may seem like a wild claim, a bold claim. I think we're going to see in a moment that it's totally vanilla. It's just what the text actually says. But the book of Revelation uses predictive prophecy. Uh, we, we can think of two types of prophecy. Prophecy in which the prophet of God is declaring or forthtelling the truth of God and preaching and applying the law of God and proclaiming the gospel to God's people. That's a, an aspect of a prophetic ministry. But not only is there forthtelling, there's foretelling. There's predictive prophecy, often what we think of when we think of prophecy. Uh, if somebody says, well, I'm not a prophet, but here's what I see on the horizon for the you know, 2024 election in the United States. Okay, what they're doing is referring to prophecy as predictive prophecy. And that's the kind of prophecy that predominates the book of Revelation. It's forecasting and foretelling certain events. Uh, not individual events per se. I mean, it's not as though you should look at this book as, uh, you know, every single detail is, is a specific event or you're reading the newspaper every day looking for the fulfillment of this or that verse, but events, periods, developments in New Testament history between now or between the, when it was written and the second coming of Christ. It's similar to the book of Daniel. We saw that when we studied the book of Daniel that it presented to us various beasts and uh, figurative allegorical uh, descriptions and and you had these various outward uh, symbols and images that represented the kingdom of Babylon, which was then conquered by Medo-Persia, and then by the Greeks, and then by the Romans, and so on and so forth. It was detailing the major events, periods, and developments between Daniel's day and the first coming of Christ. And you'll notice that the book of Revelation is in many ways patterned after the book of Daniel. In fact, in most seminaries, no matter what your theological background, they will have Bible classes devoted to Daniel and Revelation. Virtually every seminary puts these two books together. Sometimes they'll include Ezekiel because of some of the references in the latter chapters of Ezekiel that coincide with the latter chapters of the book of Revelation. But if, if we're to understand Daniel as a historical outline leading to Christ's first coming, then we can see Revelation in a similar way. It is historical. It is not merely a set of ideas, and it is not merely a set, a set of parables. And this is, I think, unfortunately, 
a coping mechanism in the modern contemporary reformed world where we see all of the craziness out there, all of the elaborate prophecy charts and the rotten fruit that has happened in the church because of these things, and we're tempted to run away from the historical nature of the book of Revelation and to say, well, no, this is more like the book uh, um, in uh, Pilgrim's Progress when Christian goes to the house of the interpreter. And there are these sort of symbols and these ideas and principles and general ideas that are set forth and we're meant to apply these things. Now, of course, we're not denying that if you look at the predictive prophecy in the book of Revelation, that you can glean ideas and principles and applications from them. And in that sense, if you were to read a commentary or you were to listen to a series of sermons by a a minister or a scholar who holds to this idealistic view that it's just a bunch of parables and ideas and images that have a general application, if you were to uh, take in something like that, you would likely find it extremely edifying. And you would probably find that if we did a sermon series from the historical or historicist outlook, and then you compared it with the idealistic outlook, that the applications would in many cases be the same. So there's much to be gleaned either way from the practical application of this book. But the point is the book of Revelation itself does not present itself as mere principles or ideas or general observations of providence or parables that have a spiritual application. It doesn't present itself that way. It presents itself as historical predictive prophecy. And look at the first few verses of the book itself. Don't take my word for it. Let's look and see what John says under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, "...the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show His servants..." Now, notice here the source of this book of Revelation. The word revelation uh, is the word from which we get the word apocalypse. It means an unveiling. It means pulling back the curtain and revealing something. And, And this revelation has a source. It comes from God. We're told that God gave it to Jesus Christ, His Son, and that Jesus has revealed it to John the Apostle by way of his angel. So if you follow it, you have God the Father giving it to the Lord Jesus Christ as the mediatorial prophet of his church. Christ as the mediator sends it by way of this angelic messenger to John the Apostle who writes down the visions. Of course, he sees the visions. He writes these things down in the book of Revelation under inspiration. And he then distributes it to the people of God. That's the source. That's what these first uh, few statements are saying. When it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's telling us this is the revelation which Jesus Christ has received from God the Father to give to John, to give to us, to give to his servants. Who is the audience of this book of Revelation? Well, again, we've already said it's his servants. Uh, Remember in uh, the book of Genesis, God says concerning Abraham, shall I hide what I'm going to do from Abraham? God's planning to do something in history. He's going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for their wickedness. And he says, shall I hide this from Abraham? You see, God 
says, I'm going to reveal what I'm going to do to my servant Abraham because I know that he's going to instruct his household and practically apply it and observe it and use it for practical benefit. So his servants, that's us, hopefully, uh, the audience. But the content, this is what we're really after, the content. The content is future historical events. Notice, things which must shortly take place. And and I want to emphasize this. Verse 1 is explicit. The content of the revelation is not Jesus Christ. This is an, I don't want to say age old, but at least in recent ages of the church, uh, a, a very common mistake. You'll hear this in sermon series and commentaries. It's a big mistake. When it says the revelation of Jesus Christ, it's not saying that the sum total of the content of the book is Jesus Christ. Of course, all Scripture proclaims Jesus. We're not doubting that. But what's being revealed is not Jesus Christ. That is a misreading. If you read it in context, the revelation of Jesus Christ, well, in what sense is it of Jesus Christ? Is it simply a revealing of ideas and facts and details about Jesus. No, that's not what it's saying. The sense in which it's of Jesus Christ is that it's from Jesus Christ. God gave this revelation to Jesus Christ, and now Jesus Christ has given it to John and to His servants by way of this angel. So it's a revelation of Jesus Christ Not in the sense that Jesus is the sum total of the content, but it's of Jesus Christ in that it's from Jesus Christ. And the content which comes next is this, what is being revealed? And the New King James does an excellent job of indicating this with that extended hyphen, which God gave him to show to his servants, extended hyphen. That's what that's telling us is, here's what he's going to show his servants. Here's what he's revealing and unveiling in this revelation. What is it? Ideas, principles, and parables. Nope. Things which must shortly take place. That phrase is never used of ideas, principles, and parables. Ever. In the New Testament. I mean, you could know that even without doing a concordance study. The the phrase is, is crystal clear. Things which must shortly take place. Not ideas, principles, and parables, but events, periods, developments. Things which must shortly take place. Ideas, principles, parables don't happen. Events do. History does. Developments, periods of time. It's a historical book. That is the content of this book. Now, no doubt there's all kinds of things intermixed in here, but the the substance of the book, we're told, is historical. Whatever it's saying, even if we come to passages in this book where we don't even understand what it's saying and we have to throw up our hands, one thing's for sure, it's referring to things which are going to take place. Events. We may not be able to figure it all out, and we may, at the the last... uh, at the end of it, the best we can do is just join in with the idealists and their relevant application, but we know that if we did understand it properly, it would be in reference to events. And so, uh, we, we need to recognize this. It's actually emphasized 
further along. Verse 3, those things which are written in it for the time is near. These are events of history that are drawing near. Verse 19 of chapter 1, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after this. You see, historical events. And then you come to chapter 5, verse 4, when there's all kinds of anxiety, if you can call it that, in heaven over who will open the scroll that contains the revelation of God's plan for New Testament history. Who's going to open up the seals? It's sealed, it's locked. Who's going to open it? Who's able to open it? Uh, Verse 2, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? So it's locked. Who's going to open the lock and give us access to this outline of New Testament history, God's plan of redemption throughout the ages. And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I wept much. Now, you think John the Apostle is going to be weeping because this scroll, which is not full of history, it's full of uh, things that he actually already knows just represented in figurative ways. Right? If the idealist view is correct, then the book of Revelation and really the content of this scroll is nothing more than the main truths of the Bible that are revealed all throughout the other books of the Bible. There's really nothing new or not much new that's represented. It's just the same truths of the Bible represented in figurative garb. You think John's going to be weeping over that? Uh, I don't think so. So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. Uh, I'm tempted here to address partial preterism because I I wonder if if the entire book of Revelation or most of it was dealing with the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, something John already knew pretty much the main points about based on previous prophecies. Would he really be weeping to know what's in it? See, it only makes sense if the content of this scroll and of this book is something that goes far beyond anything that's that's recorded in the other books of the Bible. That's the only way it would make sense for him to weep and for all of heaven and earth to long for this scroll to be opened. So it's not just a rerun of previous ideas in a different form. It's not just a rerun of certain prophecies about the temple. This is new material. And he's urgent to lay his eyes on it and to convey it to the servants of God. He wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, this is a Presbyterian book of the Bible, they have elders, do not weep, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. And the seven seals really include uh, arguably the entire rest of the book because, of course, you have the seven letters to the churches. Then you have these seven seals of the scroll containing God's plan. And in the seventh seal, you have the seven trumpets. Built into the seventh seal is the seven trumpets. And the seventh trumpet 
includes the seven bowls that are poured out, the judgment poured out in the seven bowls. And the seventh bowl points us uh, to, to, to the, the entire end and, and inclusive of, uh, of the period after that. So, so here you find in these seven seals, the opening of them is the revelation of God's plan from the first century all the way to the second coming. Now, uh, it's important to recognize that in fact this historical timeline does include material that extends far beyond the first century. Uh, I said I was tempted to address partial preterism. I guess based on my outline, that's what we're about to address. There are some people who think that the book of Revelation deals exclusively or primarily with events in the first century itself prior to the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70 by the Romans and that either none of it refers to anything beyond that or only a few small portions at the tail end refer to anything beyond the first century. But that is not a faithful representation of this book. The timeline set forth in this book extends far beyond the first century. You can see that in uh, some of the verses that I already quoted. For instance, verse 19. Write the things which you have seen, and the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. So so you have this outline of the book. There are the things that have happened, the things that are, and the things that come afterward. Now I realize that some are going to point to the language that these things will happen shortly. And they'll say, you see, it's all the first century or it's mostly the first century. Chapter 1, verse 1. Things which must shortly, quickly, swiftly take place. And they say, you see, the bulk of this book, or even the whole book itself, is devoted to things happening in the first century. But to take that stance is to ignore uh, the proper interpretation of the Greek in this passage and in several similar passages. This is a common error that uh, partial preterists, people that that view the, the large part of Revelation as having happened in the past, or full preterists who think the whole thing happened in the past and there's no second coming. This is a mistake that they make because the phrase things which must shortly take place can be interpreted in multiple ways. The verb there, to take place, can just as easily be taken in an inceptive sense. So as to say things which must shortly begin to take place. Not that all the things in the book of Revelation are going to take place in the immediate first century context, but rather that the things, these are the things which must shortly begin to take place. In other words, the timeline of the book of Revelation is about to manifest itself. The timeline as a whole, if you look at the entire timeline, the timeline is about to begin. That's what it's saying. Uh, these things which must shortly begin to take place. And a perfect example of this type of prophetic language is found in Luke's Gospel, the first chapter. Luke chapter 1, 
the prophecy of the birth of John the Baptist, where John the Baptist's father is told all these things that John the Baptist is going to do throughout his life, and then because his father Zechariah was unfaithful or unbelieving of these things, he doubted this prophecy, it's said that he won't be able to speak until these things take place. Now, let's, let's zero in on this because it's very important in terms of biblical prophecy. Luke 1.15, sp- speaking of John the Baptist, "...for he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God." He will also go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, look at that timeline of prophetic events. It extends from John the Baptist being filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb all the way to John's adult ministry in his early 30s, preaching repentance and turning people by the Spirit's power unto righteousness. So that's a timeline that extends for over 30 years. But notice in verse 20, it says, But behold, you, Zechariah, will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place because you did not believe my words which will be fulfilled in their own time. Now, if we take the incorrect, we'll just use that word, the incorrect sort of short-sighted outlook of the partial preterist, and we say, well, the phrase to take place just means all these things are just going to take place in that immediate time frame. Verse 20 would make no sense. Because verse 20 only makes sense if you interpret the verb to take place in the inceptive sense that these things will begin to take place. Because it's saying, Zechariah, you will not be able to speak until the day that these things occur. And if we don't understand that as the day in which these things begin to occur, we've got a lot of trouble because apparently in one day... John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb of his mother and grow up to be 30 and preach and bring people to repentance through the gospel. That's not all going to happen in one day. And Zechariah is not actually going to be unable to speak until the whole timeline is fulfilled. He's just going to be unable to speak until that timeline begins to take place with the birth of John the Baptist. There's a portion of the timeline right at the beginning, excuse me, right at the beginning, which has to take place, just the, the, the inception of the timeline has to take place with the birth of John, and that's when Zechariah gets his tongue back and he's able to speak, uh, but not the entire timeline. So we have to understand the inceptive use of that verb to take place, which occurs in other instances. I mean, Matthew 24 records the Lord coming in the clouds, a clear reference to the second coming of Christ. And yet partial preterists say, well, uh, we have to take it as happening in the first century because verse 34, this generation will by no means pass away till all these things take place. 
You see, again, they're missing the inceptive use of that verb. What Jesus is saying in Matthew 24 is not that His coming in the clouds will happen within one generation, but that the timeline that He set forth that begins with the destruction of the temple, and then there's a period of wars and rumors of wars and nations rising up against nations and false Christs and false teachers and false prophets and the, the gospel will be preached to all nations and then the end will come and He'll return in the clouds of heaven. So there's this massive New Testament timeline and He's saying the earliest events on this timeline will begin to take place within a generation. That's what Matthew 24 is saying. That's clearly what Luke 1 is saying. And that's what the book of Revelation is saying. These are things that span the entire New Testament period, things that have been, are, and will be to come, even down to the last three chapters of the book, when Christ returns in fire from heaven, and He establishes the new heaven, the new earth, there's the final judgment, all of these things that are in the distant future of the first century, and yet this massive timeline begins to take place within a very short time. That is the structure and the scope of this book. It's not limited to the first century. And you get into real trouble if you try to take it that way because, as I said, there are full preterists who are then going to say, well, the whole book is saying that. And, and at the end of the book, come Lord Jesus somehow now refers to Jesus coming to judge the temple rather than the great glorious hope of God's people that Christ would return at the last day. Uh, and, and if you acknowledge that the end of the book deals with something far beyond the first century, well, you, you, you've kind of uh, burst the bubble on any form of preterism because now you're acknowledging, now it becomes arbitrary to say, well, most of it's first century, but then in some arbitrary way, uh, the end of the world is tacked on to the end which is why full preterists actually refer to themselves as consistent preterists. Because once you go down the preterist road, it's difficult to find the exit ramp. Now, uh, this preteristic view also requires that the book of Revelation be dated or regarded as having been written prior to A.D. 70. If the book is mainly speaking of Christ returning to judge and destroy the temple of the Jews, which is what they say, then it has to be written before the destruction of the Jewish temple by the Romans in A.D. 70. The problem with this is that we have a disciple of a disciple of John the Apostle, a man named Irenaeus, one of the great church fathers. And in his writings, he says clearly that this book was written around 96 A.D., during the reign of the Roman emperor Domitian. Now, partial preterists are going to cast doubt on that and say, well, number one, Irenaeus could be wrong, and well, he could be, uh, but it's certainly strong testimony, a disciple of a disciple of John the Apostle. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of John the Apostle. And then they try to say, well, it's unclear in the, in the language of Irenaeus whether he's saying that the revelation was seen, the vision was seen, or that John himself happened to be seen in 96 AD. But the problem is, uh, 
almost nobody but partial preterists interpret Irenaeus in any other way. It's pretty much standard, and that's when you can kind of smell a rat, when the only people buying into a historical interpretation are the people who hold a particular partisan view. So there's strong external evidence that the book of Revelation was written long after A.D. 70, which undercuts the entire view that it's limited to the first century and to the, the destruction of the temple. The other thing to keep in mind is that the most clear and um, uh, articulate defenders of partial preterism, even they say that the book was written in 66, roughly around 66 AD. So what you have is even if they're correct, you really have a time crunch between the writing of this book and the supposed bulk of the material that's being fulfilled. Because it's only being written less than a year before the Jewish conflict between Rome and Jerusalem began in the middle of A.D. 66. So in a sense, this is predictive prophecy which is written less than a year before the main events supposedly are even taking place. So it's, it's really difficult to envision that. And in addition, you can think of the, the letter to Ephesus, which the Lord rebukes for having left its first love, the church in Ephesus. Well, if this was AD 66, uh, Paul's writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy. Most scholars believe that was in the middle of the 60s AD, perhaps 64, 65 AD. Timothy is the main um, elder or bishop or religious leader. He's an evangelist, uh, associate of the apostles, however you want to say that. But he's really the main uh, person in Ephesus right there around that same time. It's really difficult to square Jesus' letter to Ephesus in Revelation with Second Timothy and to think that Timothy is the angel of the church in Ephesus or, or perhaps uh, another problem is that uh, you have John the Apostle writing 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John to churches presumably in Asia Minor. Uh, so when did he have the time to minister to these churches to get to know them and to send 1st John, 2nd John, 3rd John? Because most historians, church historians, and even partial preterists would say that John was in Jerusalem taking care of Mary, the mother of Jesus, up until pretty much the point where Rome uh, threatened Jerusalem and so John left and was displaced. Well, again, it's a time crunch. How does he go and minister to Asia Minor and build the rapport that is presupposed in his uh, messages to, the, to these churches in Revelation? How does he write all these epistles and send them out? Because, of course, the preterists are saying that all the New Testament books were written before A.D. 70. And so, how does he write all these epistles, build the rapport with the churches in Asia Minor, and all of that when he's whisked away to a prison colony on the Isle of Patmos right at that time? I mean, there's just not enough time for all these things to happen. And if you think of it even further, how much time did the church have to even get a copy of this book? I mean, if this book was written by John on a prison colony on the Isle of Patmos in around 66 AD, and the events of the Jewish war are already going to happen within a year, 
And Nero, who's supposedly the beast and the main figure here, the main antagonist in this book, uh, he's already on the throne. The events are already in motion. How much time would it take for John's letter to get to the churches and then be copied numerous times and then be distributed to all the churches throughout the world uh, and, and then for it to be digested by the people of God and exposited by the preachers in the pulpits. I mean, we know it's the most difficult book of the Bible to interpret. And so supposedly they're able to do all this in less than a year or in a couple of years and distribute it, digest it, expound it, and apply it. It really strains at credulity to think that at the end of the day, Irenaeus was wrong, and the modern preterists are right. That seems much more clear that this was written in A.D. 96, and that, yes, in Ephesus, Timothy was ministering, but then 30 years later, they left their first love. All the evidence, most of the evidence at least, points in that direction, which is why that's the majority view among people of all theological persuasions. And then you have the view that, again, says... Nero is the beast of Revelation, and therefore we need to take this book as primarily dealing with the first century. Nero is, as it were, the Antichrist, the beast of Revelation. And they say, well, the the number 666 is the numeric number. If you take uh, a fringe spelling of Nero's name, if you put an N in there or a new in there, Neron Kaisar Nero Caesar, with a, with a sort of um, uh, creative spelling that they have found instances of it, but it's a bit alterna- alternative, then you end up with 666. And then they say, well, it's clearly Nero because we have a few manuscripts of the book of Revelation in the New Testament that say not 666, but 616, which would have been as I understand it, the more conventional spelling, uh, the more conventional numerical quality of his name. And so they say, you see, there were early Christians who understood this, right? And they put it in there because they were wanting people to understand, this is Nero, so they're putting 666 and 616. The problem is, again, if you go to Irenaeus, he's very critical of these people. He, he's actually the one who tells us the background that yes, there, there are these references to 616, and there are people who think it's Nero, but he's very critical of these people as if they're basically false teachers. And in fact, if they did doctor the manuscript so that everybody would know that it's Nero, there's a curse pronounced on them for that at the end of the book. If you, if you fiddle around with the, the prophecy... If you take certain things out or add certain things or change, change one of the digits, um, that's not a good thing. That actually tells us that whoever was thinking that probably is not someone that we should be listening to in terms of their own interpretation. Uh, the final thing that, that's often used to try to demonstrate that this book is limited primarily to the first century comes in chapter 17 verses 8 and 9. And I know we're spending a lot of time on this, and, and so be it. I think it's important for us to nail down the content of this book, the structure, the timing, otherwise making applications from random uh, proof texts and, and excerpts from the book 
really isn't going to carry much effect. But Revelation 17, 8, and 9, this is a passage if you've ever run into someone who thinks this whole book is about the destruction of the temple, it's all in the first century, for the, or at least most of it, uh, and the, the beast, the Antichrist, if you will, that type of figure is Nero, and it was all in the first century. Here's where they go for this. Uh, chapter 17, verses 8 and 9. I will say, by the way, for a number of years, I held this view, so... Um, very familiar with it. And I studied under uh, Ken Gentry, who was, uh, who's probably the foremost advocate of this view in the Reformed world today. But uh, Revelation 17, verse 8, listen to this. The beast that you saw was and is not and will ascend out of the bottomless pit and go to perdition. And those who dwell on the earth will marvel whose names are not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they see the beast that was and is not and yet is. Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. There are also seven kings. Now, this is clearly a reference to Rome uh, and seven mountains, the seven-hilled city of Rome. And he's saying that uh, the seven heads are the seven mountains on which this woman, this uh, spiritual adulterous harlot, um, uh, we don't have time to get into that at this point, but uh, she's sitting on this city of Rome, as it were. There are also seven kings. Now, here's where, here's where they say this is, these are the first seven Caesars being referenced here by John the Apostle. There are also seven kings Five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. And when he comes, he must continue a short time. That's usually where they stop the quotation, and you can look up Ken Gentry in the Four Views on Revelation, and that's where he stops the quotation. It's often where they stop the quotation. Um, But the argument is that if you count Julius as the first Caesar, and you count down the list, that Nero is number six. Now that's, uh, I suppose, a creative way to do it, but let's just grant that. We start with Julius rather than Augustus, and we've got five Caesars, then Nero is number six. Uh, One is. So they would say John's writing this, not in the reign of Domitian, Irenaeus is all wrong. This is being written in the days of the sixth Caesar, which according to their calculation is Nero. Uh, and then they say, and when he comes, uh, sorry, uh, the other has not yet come. That's the, the seventh one. And when he comes, the seventh one, he must continue a short time. And they say, you see, you've got Nero number six, five have fallen, Nero is, John's writing it in the 60s AD, and the seventh Caesar was Galba, and he reigned for two years, which was a short time, and they've got it going. They've got all their momentum, and they just often don't continue into verse 11, uh, which causes that whole speculative framework to fall to pieces. The beast that was and is not, so the beast, okay, the beast that was and is not is himself also the eighth Oops, I thought it was the sixth. See, they don't quote the part that says that the beast 
in terms of John's enumeration, is not technically the sixth. Now, you could say, well, the sixth is wounded and the eighth is sort of a, a, a resurrection of the sixth, but John calls him the eighth. Now, if you're taking one through seven as chronological and literal, which is what they do, start with Julius, you get down to number six, it's Nero, number seven for a short time, it's Galba for two years, then in order to be consistent in your interpretation, you absolutely have to take the reference to the eighth as literal. But if you do that, and if you interpret it consistently, you get into big trouble. Why? Again, just reminding you, the beast is also the eighth, which is of the seven, and is going to perdition. Who was the eighth? Otho. And he reigned for about three or four months. So he actually reigned a shorter time than the guy who supposedly uh, made a name for himself for having reigned for a short time. And Otho apparently is the beast of Revelation and the revival of Nero and the Antichrist. You see, it makes no sense. Because if you look at it in context, you find that it doesn't square. And that's the issue with the partial preterist view. They have many really impressive bullet points and radio responses and really quick sleights of hand. But when you do the research, historically and biblically, you end up with Otho the Antichrist, which is, of course, utterly absurd. Now, if we had time, we could, we could expound exactly what this is saying, but that's not my purpose this evening. My purpose this evening is simply to highlight the historical nature of this book, not merely in the first century, but for all of God's servants throughout the ages. You'll notice it's not just not the first century, and, and, and therefore it's the second coming, but it's everything in between. This book is not limited to the first century, and it's not limited to the very end of history just prior to the second coming. This book is a comprehensive view, just like Daniel from Daniel's day till the coming of Christ. Well, this is from John's day to the coming of Christ. It gives us those early prophecies that are beginning in John's day, and it gives us all the way to the second coming. Uh, we can say more next time. Obviously, many of you are familiar with the view that says that this book is limited to the very end of days, that, that this book only begins to take place and the timeline is only initiated at the very end of history prior to the second coming. We'll address that next time. But for now, recognize that you and I cannot afford to neglect this book. It has a special blessing. It provides a special insight that no other biblical book supplies in terms of a comprehensive outlook on what Jesus Christ is doing to disciple the nations in preparation for His return at the last day. And I would urge you and I would urge myself to take the, the, the posture of the Apostle John in chapter 5 verse 4 that we would love this book and desire to have it unveiled, that we would even weep to gain access to the wisdom, the insights, that we would zealously desire to see and understand these visions and to put them into practice. Let's pray.
Gracious Heavenly Father, we are grateful for Your Holy Spirit, for He has authored and inspired these words. And apart from the Spirit of God, uh, this is all foolishness unto us. These things are impossible to understand apart from His ministry leading us into all truth and sanctifying us in it. But we pray that as we study in these last few sermons of this series, as we study this book and how it presents this optimistic outlook on Christ's work among the nations, that we ourselves would be sanctified and equipped to serve our Lord Jesus Christ and to advance His kingdom. We ask in His name. Amen.